Father, we ask that you would make my words and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would give us a desire and a longing for your word, a desire and longing for you, a desire to please you in all that we do and all that we say and think. May all that encompasses us be a reflection of not just your glory and your goodness, but uh, the way that you desire for us to live. We pray that you would make your word, your word, powerfully work among us tonight so that we would want more and more of it, even in the midst of hard circumstances and painful circumstances that you send our way. We pray these things and ask all of these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. What are the things that make your heart say God is good? We'll do a little bit of a thought, internal thought experimentation. What are the things that make your heart say God is good? Is it when you're reminded at the dinner table and you're looking at the faces of your children and you're reminded of the ways that you've been praying for God to bless you with kids and there they are and there you are reminded of all the ways that God has blessed you and your heart is led to say God is good. Yes, he is. Relatedly, what are some of the things that make your heart say God is near? Is it in the midst of a lonely season where someone, a brother or sister in Christ has come your way and prayed with you, shared with you some verses of uh, encouragement or a song or just being uh, accompanying you? which has made your heart say that God is near. What are some of the things that make your heart say that? What are the things in your life that make your heart say, is God good? Are there things that cause you to question the goodness of God? And relatedly, what are some things that make your heart say, is God near? These are some of the questions that I think that our passage tonight deals with. It's getting at the awareness of the responses our hearts make when something happens. When something good happens, our hearts are naturally inclined to praise God and his goodness. And when something bad happens, our hearts are, I think, naturally often inclined to doubt God's goodness. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, let's turn together to the book of Psalm in the Old Testament. And we will read together the entirety of the 11 verses that we have in Psalm chapter 42. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mosque of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. 
By day, the Lord Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The main idea that we'll very briefly consider tonight is this. We can confidently hope in God through whatever circumstances that we face, because he will always satisfy and never fail us. For those of you that are taking notes, I'll repeat that again. We can confidently hope in God through whatever circumstances we face, because he will always satisfy and never fail us. And to see this, we'll break this passage down into two parts. We'll consider first the condition of the psalmist, what he's feeling, what's he going through. And the second is this, the hope of the psalmist. We'll try and answer questions like, what does he do with these conditions that he's feeling? Does he do anything? So the condition of the psalmist, the hope of the psalmist, out of Psalm chapter 42. First, we'll consider the condition of the psalmist. And I think we see at least three expressions that help us to understand the situation that the psalmist is currently in. And the first is that he's in longing. Secondly, he's in sorrow. And thirdly, he's feeling like he's been forgotten. He's in longing, he's in sorrow, and he feels like he's been forgotten. Let's think together for a minute about what he's going through as far as his longing goes. And I'm getting this from what he says in Psalm 41, 42, verse 1. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The panting is never used in the Bible as a way of describing someone who has everything, someone who's self-sufficient. It's, it's never described as, as a panting. It's always used in the context of a void that's desperately needing to be met. We're meant to imagine this deer that he speaks of, an animal that's normally found in a grassy field or meadow, wandering now in the middle of a scorching desert. And unlike camels, who in a sense are self-sufficient, I know they're kind of an eyesore to look at, but they are self-sufficient when it comes to water. And they actually belong in the desert, whereas deer do not belong in arid conditions. They're utterly dependent on water. So just imagine what this panting of this deer looks like. And this psalmist is feeling this desperation and this longing in him. So the psalmist is aware of a sense of emptiness that's in him, and he's longing for his God. He says in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And if you're familiar with Psalm 1, this picture calls us back to the blessed man in Psalm 1, 1 to 2, doesn't it? The one who delights in the law of the Lord Yahweh is like a tree planted by streams of water, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And this man is yielding fruit and being satisfied. He's actually where he's supposed to be, planted right by the streams of water, whereas the steer wandering in the middle of a scorching desert almost, longing to be quenched and longing for his desperation to be satisfied. Secondly, we, we see an expression of sorrow in this psalmist. Let's look together at verse 3 where the psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night. 
while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist is feeling so miserable that he's even lost his appetite for his food. Rather than his thirst being quenched by streams of water, he's having to rely on his tears to give him relief. And I think the reason for this sorrow is twofold at least. The first and obvious reason, because we saw it in the last point, as far as his longing goes, is that he's in this state because he wants God to be the one to satisfy him. He's panting for God the way a deer pants for streams of water. And the second is that there seems to be a person or groups of people who are mocking him, asking him, where is your God? We're not entirely told who these people are, where they came from, but we see this in verses 3 and 9, and they're basically saying things like, your God has deserted you. You might as well give up hope. Where is this God that you speak of? Now, we can gather at some level that this is probably a reference to a physical enemy like the Assyrians or the Babylonians who often provoked God's people. We read of it all over in the Old Testament. Old Testament. But it could also be a reference to an unseen spiritual enemy, like the devil, who we're told prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We know the devil can cause physical harm, but fundamental to who he is, he's a slanderer an accuser, and liar. The psalmist compares the pain of this sorrow that he's feeling to the deadly wounds in his bones, it says in verse 10. Just imagine the feeling of a sharp sword passing through your flesh, grating against your very bones. Brother, sister, have you ever felt so troubled or distressed or sorrowful to the point that all of your body knew to do was to weep? Have you felt a void so deep and pressing that it's caused you to doubt God's faithfulness? Let me also just say here that mourning or sadness isn't necessarily the absence or hope, absence of hope or spiritual blessing. It certainly might seem like that because we typically relate blessing to happiness and pain to mourning, but that's not what we know the Christian life looks like. God is often using painful circumstances to make us rely on him. And like we see here, God is using this longing to be satisfied, to sanctify the psalmist and make him more like himself. I believe God uses our pain and our sorrow and our longings in the same exact way. The longing that we have to not just get out of our painful circumstance, but the longing for God in and of itself, God uses to sanctify us and make us more and more like him. I think it's good for us to hear this because some of us unnecessarily bury ourselves in guilt over this idea that joy and sorrow can't commingle, that we're always having to find a way out of our sorrow, but they don't have to be enemies. I think this is why the Apostle Paul, we read this um, earlier, uh, can say that even in his affliction that he's both comforted and overflowing with joy. That's why the writer of Hebrews is able to describe Jesus' resolve to face the cross and God's wrath because of the joy that was set before him. These things can be used of God in powerful ways to reflect his glory because it shows that our comfort and happiness isn't grounded on things that are immediately tangible. Thirdly, the psalmist is feeling like he's been forgotten. We see this in verse 9 where he says, To God, why have you forgotten me? And I think the implication here is that there will be seasons of life where it'll feel like God is more absent than present. 
We know that our theology rightly tells us that God is not absent, but there will be moments where it will feel like God isn't there. Like when you're awake in the middle of the night, unable to shake the feeling of inadequacy, and whether you're able to face another day, we ask, is God near? Is God good? When you lose the most important person in your life to the most unimaginable kind of death, is God good? Is God near? Or when the longings you've had in your heart for years and years, you've prayed and you've prayed, and they're still left unmet. We're prone to thinking, is God near? Is God good? Now, this feeling of being forgotten for the psalmist isn't merely a lapse in memory, but more of a sense of being guaranteed something almost, only to find out that they can't deliver on the promise. That's what he's feeling. And it's moments like this specifically that go against our natural inclinations to equate spiritual blessings with a certainty of God's goodness. It's the mindset that says, because things go well for me, I can praise God. It's the same kind of thought experiment that we opened with. You see how deceptive our hearts can be. There's a subtle voice that creeps in by telling us that good circumstances are what define God's goodness healthy body, God is good. Flourishing career, God is good. Money in the bank, God is good. And, and the list can go on and on and on. Oh, brothers and sisters, may our circumstances never call into question God's goodness. May we never equate our earthly blessings or even the lack thereof with the trustworthiness of God. It's important to know that we're not entirely sure what's come of the psalmist's condition. We're not really told that he's entirely been saved from it. There are some indications, especially in chapter 43, verse 3, which is ten, usually uh, goes in terms of uh, reading, uh, being read together. Psalms 42 and 43, we're told that the psalmist speaks of God's light and truth leading him and bringing him back to God's holy hill and dwelling. And so we do maybe get a sense that he's been brought to where he's been wanting to go in, in terms of God's presence. But other than that, we're not really given anything else. Whether there's been a release from his pain and his sorrow and his current circumstances. And I think it's actually okay to not have a definitive escape from circumstances in this scenario. Otherwise, it may give us the impression that rescue will always come in the way that we want them to come. We know that in the grand scheme of things, in the meta-narrative, the king will return and make all things right. But like we heard just earlier from 2 Corinthians 4, 16, every affliction, every affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This leads us to our second consideration, and that's the, the hope of the psalmist. So we looked at a little bit about the condition of the psalmist, in terms of his longing, his sorrow, the feeling of forgettedness. Now we'll look at the hope of the psalmist. Does the psalmist have any reasons to hope amid his heavy-hearted longing and sorrow? Do you, friends, feel like you've run out of reasons to be hopeful? Well, the answer to the question of whether the psalmist have reasons to be hopeful are a resounding yes. My prayer is that as we consider what anchors this psalmist's hope, it would inflame our confidence, not in our circumstances, but in our all-satisfying and faithful God. We'll look at three reasons. Reason number one, 
The psalmist is hopeful because he remembers his God. We see this in verse 6 of chapter 42, where he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. This is probably the location that the psalmist is currently in as he's penning this. He then says in verse 8 of chapter 42, By day the Lord Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. With his use of the word steadfast love, the psalmist is purposely recounting the ways that God has revealed himself to his people as a God merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We know this from Exodus 34. Greg's preached from Genesis many times, and so we we know the the implications of, of God revealing himself as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. But not just in terms of his character and who he is, but also in the ways that he's acted on the behalf of his people. He's fed them in the wilderness, bringing them out of Egypt in captivity, rescuing them from the torrents of the Red Sea, protection from neighboring enemies, and, and the list for that goes on and on as well. But I think even in the way that he uses the phrase, deep calls to deep, as we see in verse 7, it's meant to give us a sense of the ever-constant reality of deaths lurking. Death isn't something that happens at the end of our lives, but a constant threat, reminding us of our mortality and our weakness. I think it's also interesting what the psalmist says in verse 7 when he appropriately designates the sovereignty and power of these waves, these torrents, to Yahweh as the source and fount of it all. He says, your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves... In other words, we're to acknowledge that these surges of trouble has purposes bound up with them. They're not random torrents of death and pain and suffering. God brought them about, and God has purposes with them. God is doing something with it, and they're not accidental. And it's within these very oppositions and threats that the psalmist is able to say that the Lord, Yahweh, commands his steadfast love in the morning and at night. His song is with me. What happens when we deliberately give our attention to meditating on God's word through memory and reflection and set aside time to commune with him is that our hearts are then tuned to sing God's praise. The more we fill our minds with the truths of God and set a pattern and a rhythm for ourselves, the more we are well equipped when the pain and suffering comes, when the questions come. The psalmist is able to sing these words of praise at night as a direct result of his communion with his covenant God. Reason number two. So he remembers his God. He remembers also worshiping with God's people. This is another reason for the the anchor being grounded in his hope. And I'm getting this from verse four. He remembers worshiping God with his people. These things I remember As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. For this psalmist, gathering to worship with the people of God had such a grip on his memory that that's what his mind went to in the midst of his agony and pain. That's such a strange thing that he would call to himself. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that God uses meetings like this one And the one that we had earlier this morning, through our singing of God's word, through hearing of it, through the preaching of it, 
through the praying for and encouraging one another, taking the Lord's Supper together, to fellowship together, to encourage one another. God uses meetings like this to galvanize our ship's anchor so that we aren't swept away when the storms come. Let's not minimize the work God is doing among us in our Sunday gatherings. May God work wonders in the midst of our pain and our suffering when maybe 10 years out, when you're utterly depressed and you're feeling hopeless and the waves are crashing over you and you seem to have no answer, that God would bring to your mind the gathering that you have with one another. As you sing songs of truth, and these truths cascade over your hearts and over your souls, and you feel encouraged, may God use the memory of these gatherings to undergird your faith and anchor your hope in his faithfulness. This is just another reminder that meetings like this aren't purposeless, and and they're not trivial. Um, I think this is a reason why the, the writer of Hebrews says rightly in Hebrews 10 that we shouldn't neglect to meet together. But as the day draws near, we should continue to meet, find ways to stir one another up. I'm 80% confident that he had Psalm 42 in his mind when he was penning that. God's going to use these gatherings to undergird you in the, in the hardest of times. May we come in every weekend as we do, expectant for God to do wonderful things as he brings the dead to life through the hearing of God's word, as he encourages us and builds us up in our distress and our pain. May he use all of this for the purposes of his glory, but also for the sake of our faith being sustained and for us to endure. Let's not minimize the work God is doing among us in our Sunday gatherings. Uh, Lastly, number three, this psalmist, he talks to himself more than he listens to himself. I'm getting that from verses five and seven of chapter 42, where he writes, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Some translations of this verse use the word countenance, or the phrase, the salvation of my face. And we, we know from reading the Bible that this comes from the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 to 26, where it says, The Lord Yahweh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord Yahweh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was a pronouncement of God's lasting favor. This was what the psalmist was telling himself. Don't be cast down, O my soul. Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. His face will shine upon you. Psalmist is saying that God will keep you and bless you. Friends, have you ever noticed that circumstances in and of themselves don't produce the responses that our hearts make or our minds make? It's actually what we tell ourselves or choose to believe in that split second that produces an emotional response of praise or unbelief. When you're told by your doctor of an inoperable terminal illness, it's not necessarily the news itself that brings about the sense of God's apparent absence, but rather a little voice in your heart that tells you that God is distant, that God isn't loving. Or when you've applied for that job 10 times and you keep getting back that same answer of no, you hear that same voice telling you that God isn't good. 
We all know the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones who famously said of this verse, and he says, quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He continues on and he says, Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. This is what we see the psalmist doing here twice in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's not out of the ordinary that the Christian can have both of those feelings going on at the same time. God doesn't guarantee delivery from an illness or a sickness or a certain pain or suffering that we face in life, but he does guarantee us his presence. So, brothers and sisters, let's talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. Let's tell ourselves, self, hope in God. He who commands a steadfast love in the morning and gives you a song to sing at night, hope in him. Remember the way he took your dead heart and gave it life. Remember his promises. He who started this good work in you will carry it to completion. He will carry you. So continue to express your grief and longings to God. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Your longings will be met because God will satisfy you forever. You will have your tears wiped away. You will not be forgotten. God will keep his covenant promises and prove himself to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, we can confidently hope in God through whatever circumstances that we face because he will always satisfy and never fail us. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask that you would send out your light and your truth so that the longings of our hearts would be satisfied. We want at the very base of our hearts to commune with you, to have our love for you. But even in the midst of our our painful circumstances and whatever you may ordain in your good purposes. While we may not find an escape immediately, we we do know from your word and from this psalmist example that you will never leave us. You've shown yourself to be faithful. You've acted in history. You've acted in our lives. We have plenty of reasons to be thankful. You've given us a song to sing. And so even even with the pain and suffering that we experience in our lives, help us to not doubt you or forsake you, but help us to cast our anxieties and our worries upon you and ask you to meet us where we are. And we know that you will. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray these things in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.